but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. We've had a hell of a week. Yeah, it's, you know, it's been a really tough week. Maybe you haven't seen our social media, but sadly we had to say goodbye to uh, to Vince, our beagle, who we've had for 14 years. Almost 14 years. He was really close to turning 16. Um, it's still really difficult to talk about. Um, maybe... I'll give a little bit of a backstory about Vince Okay. here. Probably unwisely, very early on in our relationship, we were like, let's get a dog. <laughs> <laughs> this is after uh, I moved from New York to Ontario, Canada, and we moved in together for the first time. We went to grad school together. It was very, uh, there were a lot of changes uh -huh. all at once. And it wasn't, un I mean, who, who knew that we'd still be together, right? Right. So I floated the idea of getting a dog, and you're like, no, that's Mr. Practicality here. He was like, <laughs> I don't think that's wise. And then all of a sudden, like out of the blue, like a couple months later, you're like, yep, I want a dog. We went to the London Humane Society and filled out the paperwork and all that stuff. And they were like, well, let's look at the dogs. And we took another beagle, whose name was Beacon, out into the play area. And we're like, you know what? This works for us. <laughs> and so we go to uh, officially say, like, yeah, we want to adopt Beacon. And then the, the woman who was working said, um, but have you seen Vince? <laughs> and we're like, no. And the reason why we didn't see Vince is because they had so many dogs that he was housed on the bottom floor with the rabbits in a separate area. Yeah, like in one of those wall cages. And so we took Vince out into the yard and it was like magic. It was mm -hmm. instant. It was like, yep, 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 yep. Vince's face card never once declined. In fact, he was never asked to present it. Not once. <laughs> <laughs> Truly a stunningly beautiful dog. Very temperamental. He was very particular. And we are, I mean, looking back on it, having a week's distance out from it, we were so lucky to have him for so long. Yeah. Yeah, I'm more than anything, I'm just grateful. It's, uh, you know, it's hard to get past that initial shock. But uh... thank you to everybody who reached out to us over the last week. It became clear that Vince was very much a part of the body serve. So many of you felt like you knew him, which in itself was very touching. And uh, with that, we'll get the show started because... <laughs> We've already said more than we thought we would have been able to. Mm -hmm. All right, let's move on to greener pastures. Well, I think to change the dynamic for us and have it a, be a bit light, let's let's do something messy first. Let's upend the agenda <laughs> and go to Mr. Reliable. Who? Novak Djokovic. Oh, okay. We solicited mailbag questions, in part because we knew what we were going to be faced with <laughs> the, the last few weeks, the coming weeks, and didn't know how we would be able to Q 
curate episodes, create episodes, create content. And so we needed like a, a fallback, right? Mm-hmm. But with that, so many of you asked questions surrounding this press conference that Djokovic was set to give. I believe it was the day after we last recorded. And it turned out... Right. We even considered waiting to record to see what this press conference was all about. And I'm so glad we didn't. It was clearly much overhyped by the sports media. There was nothing there. There was was no there there. Nothing to it. (laughs) It was... I'm still trying to get into the United States. I've applied for an exception, exemption or whatever they call it, which we assumed. And Update he, on his health, all that stuff. You know, talk about how the hamstring tear was a real thing. I don't know why you don't believe me. And it was kind of, it was also just a day for fans to hang out. And I, I think he signed some stuff and like there were kids there, right? They're, it's just a normal thing that he does. It wasn't some big, important press conference. Right. He was playing in Dubai. And with that, him being on the tennis circuit again, with Indian Wells and Miami coming up, with the knowledge that he had applied for this exemption and us not knowing how that would turn out, that kind of dominated the Novak news this past week. We get confirmation that this special exemption has been denied. Djokovic will not play in the Sunshine Double. But as has been the case with everything Novak-related during the pandemic, the discourse gets co-opted. Yes. Now, before we heard that the application had been denied, Indian Wells and Miami and the U.S. Open, for some reason, had already done a, a tweet campaign stating that Novak should be allowed to play, he's earned it, just give him the exemption. I understand why Indian Wells and Miami would do that, because the draws are pretty light this year on the men's side. Now, the USTA does not own any part of either of those tournaments, so I was sort of confused. I'm sure somebody else could explain what their financial incentive is for getting involved, but they don't make any money directly from the tournaments, I don't think. Miami is owned by IMG. Indian Wells is owned by Larry Ellison. The Both the grounds and the tournament itself are wholly owned by him. Senators Rick Scott and Marco Rubio start tweeting about this stuff. A Senator Rick Scott from Florida tweeted, at Joker Nole has earned the right to compete in the Miami Open. Senator Marco Rubio and I just have one question. Will Joe Biden let him? And he even wrote a letter, right? Let's be very clear. These guys don't even know who he is. Like, they wouldn't know Novak if they passed him on the street. Maybe they've watched one or two tennis matches. This is purely political theater. They do not give a fuck if he plays in the Miami Open. It's, these are the senators from Florida. This is what they feel they have to do. This is their brand. They need to just appeal to their rotten supporters, essentially. And then we have surrogates, Isner... And Ellen Perez Uh taking to the airwaves, the Twitter airwaves, as shoddy as they are at the moment, (laughs) to... Well, these are clearly Novak surrogates. She's very active on Twitter, and she's tweeting about, well, you know, I haven't had a booster in so long. Basically, it means I've never had one, but I get to go play the tournament. How come he doesn't? 
It just betrays a really embarrassing lack of knowledge about science. And I'm not claiming to be a scientist, but I would never tweet something like that and expose my ignorance. Mm. And then we had one Billie Jean King quote tweet the US Open account to say, hope to see Novak play at Indian Wells and Miami. Like, <laughs> Billy, why are you doing this? I just don't understand. I, Billie Jean, I feel like she is compelled to comment on basically all of the current events in sport, in tennis especially. And most of the time she's on a really progressive side. Like mm -hmm. she's trying to cement her legacy. And she's taken a very clear, distinct approach on trans rights versus Chrissy and Martina. I don't really know why she dipped her toe in here. Typically, Billy's brand is if there's anybody of note in the sporting world who has passed, she is there to commemorate it. Yeah. If the bird that flew over Arthur Ashe when Serena and Venus first played a U.S. Open final passes away, <laughs> Billie Jean King will write. And she knows about it. Exactly. Uh, I, I just, this is just... I don't understand why we're still talking at about this, this point. At this point, in 2023, they're all pissed off because the the rules are set to expire in a few months. And they're saying, well, wh what's the point? Why not just let him in? Okay, so what's the argument? The argument is, A, you feel the rules aren't based on scientific fact. That the rules haven't been implemented fairly or evenly sure. over the years, which they haven't. We traveled to the States by ground quite a few times and were never asked for a vaccine yeah. certificate. Well, the rules have been different from ground versus air travel throughout the whole pandemic on a number of different points. Right. But at times when we would have been required to present one, we didn't have That's to. true. And so people say, his fans say that he's being penalized by his fame. Like, okay. But he said, I have made a choice. I am happy to live with the consequences of that choice. And at every turn, he's shown that he's not happy to live with the consequences of that choice. And he has a thousand surrogates out here, senators now, doing his bidding, begging Joe Biden. And it's all Joe Biden's fault, of course. Why? But why would you lift it for him out of anyone? There, there are two like legal reasons to accept the application. One is that someone has medical contraindications and can't take the vaccine. That's not it. The second is in the national interest. And again, I say, like at the U.S. Open, why is it in the national interest that Novak Djokovic plays Indian Wells or Miami? Did the U.S. Open suffer because he wasn't there? I would argue not. And yes, in this instance, he is a victim of his fame, to a, to a degree, right? If yeah, he because he can't slip in like some right. other people can. If he weren't famous and nobody really was tracking his movements, maybe he could have crossed a border somewhere and rented an Alamo van and mm -hmm. <laughs> made, made his way across country. Mm -hmm. And you know, you notice how easily uh, the anti-vax movement slips into anti-immigrant sentiment. Mm -hmm. How many tweets you've seen about how, well, if he was a Mexican crossing the border illegally, he could just get in. Like how quickly we go there. But he also benefits from his fame. Well, because sure. by taking this stance and being so public about it, he has elevated himself in certain circles. He has. I would argue he's more famous because of it. Mm -hmm. He set himself up for 
whatever political turn he wants to do after his playing career is done. Like, my main issue with this is wanting to have your cake and eat it too. Right. Wanting to do whatever you want, whenever you want. Maintain some kind of moral high ground of my body, my choice, co-opting verbiage from (laughs) other things. And just not doing what you said you would. Like you took uh, an allegedly principled stance. Stand by it. I'm tired of hearing about it. Right. Does that mean that he's still not the best player in the world? He absolutely is. Does not mean that he's entitled to do whatever he wants. Just because he can play tennis better than anybody else on the men's tour right now. I don't know where the rules are rules people are right now. Well, we always knew. (laughs) Rules are rules as long as you like the rule, basically. As long as as certain people aren't benefiting from the rules. Only certain people can break rules. The other thing about uh, uh, Novak, we were talking last, last, well, two weeks ago, when he, uh, I'm not even going to say, he got more weeks at number one. Mm -hmm. However... Every everybody and their mother and the WTA took it as he beat Steffi Graf's record at number one of 377 weeks. Now, why would the WTA be participating in this? It this was boggles the mind. This was honestly disturbing to me. It really made me upset. The WTA tweeted and then wrote a story about how Novak broke Steffi's record. Steffi, a WTA player who owns the WTA record, she's a woman tennis player. How many times are we told these are different games, different sports? We don't compare records. So why is the WTA doing it? Is this a consequence of Tennis United? That you uh, make your own record seem small because a man passed an imaginary milestone? Mm. And again, this this really has nothing to do with Novak's 378 weeks at number one. I'm not diminishing that. My point is, why are you comparing the two? Okay. Are we ready to talk about some actual tennis now? Sure, sure. Because Barbora Kritikova did the thing. <laughs> this seems like so long ago, but Barbara beat the number one player in the world, Iga Sviantek, to win Dubai. She also beat the number two and number three players. She saved match points. She uh, basically parked her feet on the service box to return Iga's second serve and just demolished it. It was a very exciting week to be a Barbara fan. She even overcame bagels, eating bagels that week, but was unperturbed. In the quarterfinals, she gets bageled by Sabalenka in the first set, winning the second in a tiebreak and then running away with it in the third, 6-1. And then she hands Pagula a third set bagel on Jesse's birthday. And Pegula tweeted about it afterward, saying, you know, this is what the life of a tennis player is, getting bageled on your birthday. Right. And then she's like eating Doritos and waiting for a flight from Dubai back home to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Earlier, she beat Daria Kazatkina. She was down four match points and saved them. Beat Petra, all to reach the final and to face Iga, who's on a serious roll again, right? We were talking last week about, is this... The start of this no- another imperious run for Iga because the Sunshine Double's coming. She had just won in Doha. Mm-hmm. And Clay was right around the corner. And Barbara is just a bad, bad matchup for Iga. And part of the reason is that she's 
just so good at taking the ball early. She knows how to read Iga's serve. And she just, it feels like she can see the court better than almost anybody. Like she's thinking a few steps ahead out there. Well, we know that she's a student of the game. She attends every match that she possibly can. She's always watching tennis. Renee Denfeld tweeted that her game is metronomic. Yes, like a metronome. Mm-hmm. Very, rid- like she's keeping the beat. It's, It feels almost automatic when she plays. And I was watching her and I'm like, wow, you know, there's something so aesthetically pleasing about watching this woman play and I can't really put my finger on it. But I think that's it. That it- spoke to the musician in you. Yes. <laughs> it just feels so steady. But you know how much work it goes into making things look that natural. Right. And something has clearly clicked because not more than a few weeks ago, she was looking rusty coming back from injury. And now she had this humongous win. Series of wins. And another one, right? Clearly showing that she can match up against anybody in the world. Yes, because she played a bunch of different kinds of players this week and handled them all. During the final, it was so funny to me how she was able to return Iga's serve because everybody on tennis Twitter is always talking about Iga's serve is beatable, right? It's if you read it, you should be attacking it. Why aren't the girls doing it? And well, that's Babs it. did you ha- it. You have to read it. Right, right. She stood so close to return the second serves. It looked like Serena Williams returning serves out there. She stepped in so far. And my gosh, she just punished these returns. Iga only won four of 17 second serve points. That's really bad. Iga has made 15 (laughs) career WTA finals, winning 12 of them. Two of those three losses have now come to Barbora Krejcikova. (laughs) Right. Uh, By the way, there were 10 finals in a row that she won. She was the finals queen. But there's something about facing Krejcikova that is really difficult for her now Iga was sick she wasn't at kind of her optimal powers and reportedly uh she's still sniffling down in Indian Wells this week which is kind of alarming like I hope everything is fine another WTA 1000 and another just incredible quarterfinal lineup and I feel like on the current WTA you could have 32 different players in the quarterfinals and call it an unbelievable lineup. This one had Mukhova. She has been coming back from injury gradually, you know, hitting tweeners, working magic on the court. She got a big win over Belinda Bencic, only to have to withdraw in the quarterfinals with an abdominal injury that we hope is not serious because people, I mean, we, we love her. Everybody wants to see her come back. Madison is in the quarterfinals. She needed a rebound. She lost a lot of points from the Australian Open, having not uh, defended semifinal points. Was in the quarterfinals. Right. right. <laughs> Sorry, this was a while ago now. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> she beat uh, Garcia and Azarenka to get there. And unfortunately, in those four quarterfinal matches, two of them were walkovers. But what a lineup. In Merida, I won't make that mistake again. <laughs> The Georgia Syndicate rolled right through, right into Mexico, and walked away with the title. Wow. First of all, she beat Queen of Mexico, Sloane Stevens, 6-love, 6-love. Mm-hmm. The rare double bagel. 
against a player of Sloan's caliber, it was shocking. Well, <laughs> I mean, sure, Sloan may go through long stretches of just not very good play, but she seems to light up in Mexico. And but a double bagel? Come on, people! People were yes, gagging. It was it was eye opening. It's the fourth title of her career, and first since winning the Canada Masters in Montreal in 2021. Wow, and you have here, I didn't see you add this to the agenda, you have in parentheses, and her first while under investigation for medical fraud. (laughs) (laughs) Well, is it not? (laughs) That's an achievement in and of itself, you know, being able to overcome that sort of scrutiny and pressure. (laughs) Well. Finishing up WTA this week, this past week, Another Mexican tournament, this one in Monterey. Donna Vekic beat Carolyn Garcia in the final. Like Georgie, this is the fourth WTA title of Vekic's career. And she's really on an upswing. We learned in Australia that she was working with Pam Shriver. Mm-hmm. She made the quarterfinals there. Subsequent quarters and now a title in Monterey. This after, if you recall, she made the final in San Diego last fall, losing to Iga Sviantec. So this is a a sustained run for Vekic. Yeah, because not so long ago, Vekic was seeing the lowest of lows. Really just a a bad turn in her career. In Austin, Texas, a new tournament in Austin, Marta Kostyuk beat Gracheva, a uh, Ukrainian versus Russian final. The players did not shake at the end of the match, and some people were making a big thing of this, but it seemed to have been an understanding between the two of them that... It just, it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't like, oh, somebody stormed off. It was just a, an acknowledgement that a Ukrainian and Russian player are not going to shake right now. Or at least. Or these two aren't. These two. <laughs> yeah. And uh, talk about sport not being political. Mm-hmm. Bookmark this right? one. Right. Bookmark this one the next time somebody says that there are no politics in sport. Right. Or that there shouldn't be politics in sport. Because at the core of it, players are human. And in this instance, these two players, you may say especially Kostyuk, are particularly affected by the world around them. And their actions on the court are a byproduct of that. And it's not for us. We have now firmly taken the stance that it's not for us to opine one way or the other the validity of those actions. So some people are taking the opportunity because they don't like her to pounce on it. And frankly, I don't care. I really don't care if you don't like her. Over on the ATP side, Carlos Alcaraz and Cameron Nori were trading South American tournaments back and forth. Uh Alcaraz won, uh, what was it? It was BA, Buenos Aires, beating Nori in the final. The following week, they get to the final again in Rio, and Nori gets revenge. Carlos... Seems to have a re uh, what what's the word reappearance reemergence a reaggravation uh, react sure of the hamstring injury and I don't know it it could have been a distinct injury I'm not sure but it turns out he does have a grade one hamstring strain he did continue through that final clearly hampered it looked like his team was trying to encourage him to stop he refused to sound familiar Rafael Nadal. Mm. And uh, luckily, it didn't. It didn't get much worse, right? It's it's still only a grade one. It's not a very serious strain. It's the kind of thing that uh, 
you fix using the rice method, you know, rest, ice, compression, elevation. I've never heard of that. Are you serious? Serious. I'm not even an athlete. Well, <laughs> I looked it up because I wanted to know what grade one meant. Uh, but it, it does require some rest. And so when I heard that he was seriously contemplating playing in Dubai, I was alarmed for a young player to to be thinking about this. I have to hope that his team was seriously discouraging it. But that should have never been on the table because there wasn't even a week break. Would have had to get on a plane and go straight there. I saw a lot of talk on Twitter as well as to why Cameron Norrie was playing in South America. Why is he playing on clay at this stretch? Why isn't he in the Middle East? Why isn't he playing Rotterdam? Right, but why not? Well, once you see the results, it's like, wow, what an opportunity that was. Well, also, it sets him up really nicely for the clay swing mm -hmm. to have results that he never had before, to take another step forward in his career, because his is one of improbability his career so far, <laughs> right? It took a long time, myself included, to really consider Cam Nori a perpetual threat on the ATP tour, like a serious, legit contender. And if he's able to add clay to his resume, <laughs> I mean, watch out. Yeah, he uh, he's a huge overachiever, right? But the athletes always tell you, never underestimate the type of confidence you get from winning. So if he went down to South America thinking... I'm going to win some matches here. Like, if anything, I may not win titles. I may not win the biggest money there is. But if I can win matches here, I can carry that through. Momentum is so, so important in tennis. And you get two looks at Alcaraz in back-to-back -back weeks. Right. And you can say you beat this kid. Because even an Alcaraz on one leg is deadly, as you saw in that final. Some of the shots he was able to pull off out of desperation, it is so hard to put him away. The other big news on the ATP tour is that Daniil Medvedev went back to back to back. Yeah. He you, went from you, Rotterdam to Doha to Dubai and won them all. You had this on the agenda. Medvedev goes B to B. And I had to add another 2B because he won a third tournament. <laughs> 14 matches in a row. 15 sets in a row, actually. Went through the Dubai draw without losing a set and that's including wins over Djokovic and Rublev Djokovic in the semis and Rublev in the final mm -hmm. after winning that final on court he took some shots at Stefano Tsitsipas <laughs> he he had been waiting to do this you know you just have to respect a petty queen like you really do <laughs> the, the way he reignited this this feud they have they had that famous on-court scuffle years ago, right? Yes, yes. This was even before Daniel was really famous. You know, Stefanos was the bigger player at the time. And they got in that scuffle and Daniel said, shut your fuck up, man. <laughs> man, you better shut your fuck up. <laughs> he was basically saying, referencing Tsitsipas being all salty and press, saying that Rublev doesn't have any weapons. I don't really know why he's winning matches. He's not a threat. He does one thing. Mm -hmm. And so Daniil was like, you know, somebody said that this guy only has one weapon and can't do all these things. But I don't know what they're talking about because, you know, he can do all these things. He's going to win Grand Slams. 
da 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 like for that to be the go-to. Right. So he had been sitting on this for a while. And he he would like to bring it up now in the trophy presentation. Daniel says things with this knowing smirk that is just deeply charismatic. It really is. He like knew what for he was all doing. his faults. He knew what he yeah. was doing. It was like, you know, she just says things and, and speaks her mind. Because <laughs> <laughs> Stefanos really does give Martina Hingis sometimes. He definitely gives not having a formal education. Oh my no God. shade. That is so rude. No shade to those who don't have them. I, and it's not like literal. No. Not like a literal education. It's a no, but Stefanos likes to say things and, and speak his mind. He's just less, I would say, less confrontational than Martina. But there are definitely elements there. Stefanos doesn't have the gravitas to back it up. He doesn't have well, right. she the self-confidence, like, like the yeah. maniacal self-confidence <laughs> that Martina Hingis had. Yeah. Knowing that you can, you can try, you can come for my crown. And if you manage to get past the guards and the moat <laughs> and the castle bridge, you, if you cross it before it... The, the drawbridge goes Yes, up. Mm-hmm. before it comes up. I'll handle you on my own. Right, right. <laughs> you know? You're going to have to knock her crown off. So back to Medvedev. He, he just had an incredible three weeks, which it felt like he kind of needed. His Australian Open was so disappointing, having lost in the third round to Korda. He lost a bag of points. It knocked him out of the top 10. He's back to number six, by the way. I think up to number five in the live rankings mm. as of right now. He It just seems like he really needed a run like this. He had something to prove. I I might be putting words in his mouth, but he might have been a bit feeling a bit injured that he was no longer in the top 10 where he had been since July 2019. And you know, if he felt a little bit salty that he was no longer in the talk... He did something about it. Exactly. I mean, so this is, uh, as we know, it's a strange part of the calendar. There are players playing all over the place. But look at the caliber of players he beat over these past three weeks. It was There were no soft draws in these 250s and 500s. He beat Felix, Yannick Sinner in the Rotterdam final, Dimitrov, Andy Murray, Borna Cioric, Djokovic, Rublev. He's the first player, you have this noted here, so if it's wrong, everybody can blame you. He's the first <laughs> player since Andy Murray in 2011 to win in three consecutive tournaments. No. In three consecutive weeks. Exactly. Okay. Three tournaments in three weeks, which I just, I cannot even imagine the work, the the strain it takes to do that. Shout out to Andy Murray and his run in Doha. Because he looked defeat in the eye multiple times and said, I shan't. (laughs) Just absurd, grueling tennis that he was able to win. Previously, he'd have, you know, one great long drawn out battle. And then, well, the next match, the writing was on the wall. But he was able to string together a few, few wins in Doha to actually make the final. He actually saved... Match points in multiple matches. He saved three against Sonego and then five against Lehechka. The Lehechka one, <laughs> if you haven't watched it, go back and at least watch the highlights. Just absurd stuff. Think about the fact that Andy spent 10 hours on court just to reach the final. This is at a 250 event. Best of three. Right, when you're playing every day. You're playing back-to-back. 
he's beating, playing and beating players like Sonigo, Zverev, Lahechka, who hits a huge ball. And you've done all of this work. You know, I I don't mean this to be a party pooper, but you have done all this incredible work for 150 points, yeah. right? To be a runner-up in a 250. Yeah. It's just like this draw is is so high caliber. Not to be outdone, Andrei Rublev saved five match points in a row against Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. He was down 1-6 in their second set tiebreak and won five points in a row to save all those match points. Rublev scored his very first career win against that guy. He did. This was their sixth career match, and clearly there was a matchup problem going on there. He had never even won a set. But this is the time to get him, you know. Kick him while he's down. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. I mean, the best of luck. Wishing him luck. And then in Dubai, Medvedev beat Djokovic 6-4, 6-4 in the semis to snap Djokovic's 20-match season-opening win streak. Which, if that sounds familiar, it's just about what Nadal did last year. And just to be clear, Rublev did all that match point heroics at Dubai, not Doha. Not the same tournament. At Dubai. In Dubai. (laughs) To Dubai. Of Dubai. With Dubai. Like... (laughs) Whatever. But you were saying Medvedev snaps Djokovic's 20-match win streak. Mm-hmm. which I believe equals Rafa's win streak to start last year. I think there was, there were, he played 21 matches. Well, didn't play. There was a walkover in there. So it stayed at 20. Rafa famously lost at the Indian Wells final, in the Indian Wells final. <laughs> <laughs> Djokovic, uh, he just wasn't, wasn't a, you know, a hundred percent. Medvedev played, sorry, not to imply that he was injured. I'm saying he just wasn't playing his very best tennis, clearly. Medvedev's defense was out of this world. And he was just beating Djokovic in the rallies. We have a few other tournaments just to kind of catch up on over the past two weeks. Uh, last week in Marseille, Orkac beat Bonzi. Acapulco was this week. There were uh, there was a 500 in Acapulco and one in Dubai, of course. Alex Diemenauer beats Tommy Paul in the final there. This was definitely a more Anglophone 500. A lot of Americans in the draw, an Australian one. Fritz beat Isner in three sets. I don't know why he's losing. A set to John Isner without a tiebreak. Beat Chapovalov, Francis, but then lost to his friend Tommy in the semifinals. This week in Santiago, Chile, Nicolas Jari beat Echeverry in the final. A few years ago, you know, Jari served a slightly less than one year suspension for a banned substance. I remember at the time I accidentally called him Argentinian. He's not. He's from Chile. So he wins a title in his home country. He had his son on the court, a little baby boy who tried to eat the microphone. They all do, you know? (laughs) Babies love microphones. (laughs) We just watched this past week Full Swing, which was the golf version of the tennis netflix docu-series is that that's what it was called full swing okay somebody said that we should rename our podcast the birdie shot (laughs) the birdie shot (laughs) because we were getting into golf yeah you you know way more about golf than i do but i grew up with it always 
on TV in my house, mostly on Sundays, right? And you my, played golf yeah, as a child. And my grandparents played and they watched a lot of golf, but I don't really know a ton about the modern game until I started watching players who I found attractive, Brooks Kepka. And so you really only watch on Sundays if Brooks is in competition. Right, and lately he's not. And he's gone to live, right, the, uh, the competing tour, and so I won't see him week in, week out. This documentary was, to me, it was gripping. Like, I've, I actually found myself compelled to follow these random players who I'd never heard of. They just managed to craft stories to me that were more interesting than Breakpoint. I mean, what was the tennis equivalent of Joel Damon? Of <laughs> yes. Sahith Tigala. I don't know. I mean, the on story was great. Mm-hmm. In Breakpoint? Is that what it was called? Yeah. But overall, for one, the stories were easier to follow. Vis-a-vis the yes. actual play. Mm-hmm. Right? You can you can look at a leaderboard, right? They do an infographic of somebody's changes moving up the leaderboard. It's very visual. It's easy to grasp. And that was one of the... The sticking points for me with Breakpoint is that we didn't really see much actual tennis. No. Like, the only thing that really sticks out to me is the fabricated on-court injury by Taylor Fritz <laughs> at Indian Wells. <laughs> Not fabricated. Fabricated in that uh, it was over-exaggerated. Sure, yes. It was... That part was scripted. It It was. I also felt like the golfers were willing to go a little bit deeper or or maybe the documentary was willing to spend a little more time with them. I felt that they actually created a narrative in each episode that I felt was missing from the tennis version. In in full swing, you have the specter of Liv hanging over the entire series, right? Mm-hmm. And so that creates added context, added drama. It, it creates built-in drama to the season of golf that's there at every turn. What could that have been in tennis? Did we get a peep about the PTPA? Um, I don't. Didn't. We may have, but like you could have created a season-long narrative for that show, tapping into why something like the PTPA exists to show just how much tennis players are struggling on a week-to-week basis. Right. It was very surface level. Compared to in golf, I felt like we knew these people's finances. We knew that Joel Damon had had a traumatic experience, his mother passing away. We understood how golfers made money and why they would make the decision to go to live. Even if it were they were like silly uh, rationalizing reasons. Lying <laughs> through their teeth. <laughs> Everybody who went, who was asked, had to do this little song and dance. Like, they had to pretend that it wasn't strictly mercenary. Right. And Like, I'm doing this for my family. I have to take so care my, of my family. Like So dude, that my great, great, great grandchildren will never have to want for anything. Right. You make millions upon millions per year just in prize money. And then now you're saying you have to take care of your family. Clearly, people who have money, if you have money, it will never be enough. So stop stop pretending like you really had to think that hard about it. Just say, yeah, I'm going to live because I'm making a shit ton of money. But that in and of itself was kind of interesting to watch. So golf was lucky that they had that big storyline. Golf is also lucky that the people they chose to follow in January ended up doing big things on tour. I also think that Full Swing benefited from 
there being so much money in golf. You can tell mm -hmm. a wider swath of stories when so few of the people who you're covering are actually struggling. Yeah, yeah. For context, the year-to-date prize money list comparison between the PGA Tour and the ATP Tour, as of right now, 65 men have earned over a million dollars on the golf course alone this year. 65 PGA Tour players mm -hmm. have earned over a million dollars. It's March 6th. Something like 105 of them have earned over $500,000. How many ATP players have won a million dollars to date? Four. Yeah. Four compared to 65. And golf has not had a major yet. Tennis has. <laughs> so I came very close. You asked me. I almost guessed the number for golf. I estimated there were 60 players who've reached a million dollars. There's 65. But when you asked about tennis, I said, oh, I think probably like 11 or 12 have made a million dollars. No, no. Only four. One of them had to win the Australian Open. Another had to win three tournaments back to back to back in order to do that. Are you saying you're joining the PTPA staff? <laughs> no. Uh and what's funny is that like golfers still want more like they still want a bigger piece of the pie so much so that they're going to this shady ass live where they have all these weird rules about what players can do they're taking the risk right because the payoff is unbelievable even if they make that money for just one year but they are risking being banned from the pga forever well, what i don't it? think they will be judging by sports history and this has happened in tennis, too. I don't think they'll be banned forever, but they are taking that risk. Okay, but what is it that's different about golf as opposed to tennis that allowed for such better behind-the-scenes footage? Like okay. Everything felt so much more laid back that the players had more time to tell stories in between events. Yeah, I, I would be actually interested to know from people who do spend a lot of time behind the scenes in tennis, like what what was missed like was there an opportunity to make a documentary like the golf one or better and was it just missed or is there is it just a different feeling behind the scenes is it because most of these guys come from a certain class they have a lot in common most of them are white most of them are country club types maybe the, the camaraderie comes more naturally to them right but we saw the dynamic with mito Pereira. And a lot of the South American golfers that mm. they go and they rent a house together and all the families are there together. Yes. I'm sure that kind of dynamic exists in like, pockets and cliques on the tennis tours. I would have loved to see that. So yeah. w was it just a complete lack of imagination or wherewithal to know where to look for these stories? Because Nick Kyrgios and what is his name? Kokonakis. Mm -hmm. That was not it. Like, you go to the Australian Open, and all that happened, and that's what you come up with. It's not because Rafa Nadal didn't want to play ball with this documentary, because neither did Tiger Woods, but he was there at every turn. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, you made the decision that this was going to be who is next after the big three, this tired trope narrative that we've presided over for the last eight, nine years and even beyond, beyond that, mm. people have like, been people have been looking beyond the Williamses for decades now, <laughs> right? And so, it was just such a failure of imagination 
just tell us stories. And even with the Nick thing, I I wouldn't really have been interested in any incarnation of a Curios episode, but they spend some time building him up and, and talking about how he's Tennis's bad boy. And then the rest of the episode is an attempt to soften his hard edges. And it was like, what what story are you telling here? This doesn't feel authentic to anyone. We didn't get families in Breakpoint. Yeah. Seeing Sahith and his father and his family, mm-hmm. seeing Tony Finau and his entire family. The whole brood. Uh, him winning on home turf in Minnesota at the 3M Open. Like Those are interesting things. That when he lands off the plane and the whole family is there on the tarmac, we didn't get that really in Breakpoint. Mm-hmm. We got Ons's husband slash trainer. Yeah, or even Finau really upset that he missed his son's golf tournament. That was emotional stuff. Anyway, I am shocked how much I enjoyed this golf documentary. I would watch another season. No, absolutely. And to me, now I'm we're staring down the barrel of Breakpoint Part Two, and it just feels like, oh, I guess we got to do this again. It feels like more of a chore. But now you have like a handful of other golfers outside of Brooks Kepka to oh, follow. Totally. I am going. To, I'm going to be rooting for Matt Fitzpatrick. Like who? But seriously, I am because I found his episode really interesting. Until we find out that they're all Trump supporters. Well. Which they probably are. <laughs> probably. Yeah. If you, if you Google that type of stuff, even going back to like 2000, something like 90-something percent of golfers surveyed are all Republican. Yes. It's probably like the most Republican North American sport that there is. Probably. Angela Bassett did the thing. Viola mm. Davis, my woman king. Blanchett Kate. You're a genius. <laughs> Jamie Lee is all of us. Jamie Lee is not not, all of us. She's the daughter of Tony Curtis and Janet Lee. Jamie Lee has really been leaning into the Nepo baby thing because she was clearly very bothered by that vulture story about Nepo babies in Hollywood. She said it was hateful. Oh, dear. It's so wild to me. Because there's such an easy answer to that. I think we already talked about that, so it doesn't have to be that deep. Yeah, but, who was the who was the one who answered it best that we we saw? Oh, I don't remember. It was somebody unexpected? It was Allison Williams, right? <laughs> oh yes. Anyway, the Ariana DeBose BAFTA musical number has been living rent free in the heads of homosexuals around the globe. Drag queens were out here with the swiftness. Uh, creating routines okay. to this. Whoever was one drag queen I saw on. The thing happened on Sunday. By Wednesday, she already had a mix and a performance of this song going around on TikTok. I, I am just so hats off to you. When this happened, I saw people talking about Ariana and some performance and how bad. I kept seeing people say it was horrendous and that they couldn't believe it. And then hours later, I, I watched it and I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> This is so good. And I think you were initially caught up in, like, this woman is supremely talented and in no way, shape, or form should she be out here performing out of breath. Right. I'm like, what? she's actually a dancer first. Why is she out of breath? And I was like, was maybe that, was that maybe part of the plan? <laughs> and even if it weren't, it still worked? Like, uh, it's, The funny thing was the reactions because 
it seemed like each actress was so caught off guard. Like, it happened so fast. Their names are being sung. And then as you get later in the sequence, like, then you realize, they realize, oh, okay, I'm going to be on camera. She's going to say all of our names so they know how to react. Uh, I've never seen anything go from cringe to celebrated so quickly. Well, I think it's because the people who found it cringe didn't get it. I don't think it was ever intended to be a serious thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think she was taking the piss the entire time. And people were mocking her online so much so that it seemed like she deleted her Twitter. But she came back. It's, you know, she has good humor about it. Angela Bassett gave her her stamp of approval. At the NAACP Image Awards, Angela Bassett even accepted awards, saying, "I well, I guess Angela Bassett did the thing. <laughs> Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan. <laughs> um, this is so funny to me. I'm, I know you put it on the agenda. I'm so tired of seeing the discourse about this because a lot of people don't know Shaka Khan. And they also don't know what her generation of singers gives mm-hmm. in in both talent and pure hateration. Right. There was this clip going around of Whitney back in the 80s talking with Sissy, her mother, and about Paula Abdul. <laughs> and saying, but mama, she's singing off, off key on the record. On the record. On the record. <laughs> <laughs> but that's... Oh, you remember that's the, that's Dame, the, Dame yeah, Shirley Bassey said, Tina Turner, she doesn't have the range. Right, but Paula didn't have the range. Like, she was not a Correct. singer, right? <laughs> for Shaka out here to be coming for Miss Carrie and calling her position at number five on this made-up list, Paola. Paola. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. Like, we know that Shaka is from the Aretha school of... Well, not even, because Aretha publicly would never be that... She's more from the... The shade school of things. Yes. Right? Yes. She's much more subtle with it. Shaka is Shaka's different, right? Like, she she grew up different. She was always more confrontational, more in your face. Aretha was imperious. But, but, if you read her, any of her biographies, you know that she was... Deeply Or she insecure. could be incredibly jealous and very insecure... Uh, she wasn't particularly generous to other female singers, especially ones who came after her. Like, apparently she was jealous of Natalie Cole, Roberta Flack, which is so interesting because they all do very different things. Mm-hmm. Well, part of it, too, is that Aretha was offered a lot of things that those women went on to have great success with, and she passed. Yes, yes. Like some, natic, I think This Will Be is one of them that Aretha oh. passed on, and she, I mean. Well, she could sing, you can hear her singing. Exactly. This is just deeply mean-spirited. And for me, while I've adored Shaka Khan and her performances over the years, this type of mean-spiritedness is just not on for me. (laughs) I get it and I understand where it comes from. No, because it was incorrect. Exactly. That's what you have the problem with. I get, I would totally get if she's annoyed that Adele and Mary are ranked higher than her. Because I think objectively, Shaka is a better singer. But Mariah is Mariah. Like, her saying that Mariah placing so high is payola, that's that's personal. There's nothing objective in that, in that reading of it. These that's are, just personal. Like, she don't like her. These are two women in the history of music who have two of the most 
distinctive tones. Mm. They open their mouth, you know who's singing. And, you know, not for nothing, Miss Shaka Khan, like you've had your various moments of vocal missteps over the years. There were times <laughs> when you sang and I would have taken Whoopi Goldberg's nails on the chalkboard in Sister Act instead. Wow. There were times. Wow. You are bothered. I, I mean, I'm so annoyed by it. Partly because I enjoy her music so much and I think so highly of her talent. No, you know what bothered me is that she was like, oh, Christina Aguilera, yeah, she can stay. Black people like her. Like, what? Black people like Mariah Carey too, don't they? I was so confused by that statement, which convinced me that it's a personal thing with Mariah. Because Uh, she's also talked shit about Beyonce before. In the past, but now she's like, "Oh no, Beyonce's a great singer." Like, I, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of internal logic <laughs> to this. Finally, just an anecdote here. Not this past Saturday, the one before. I waited on somebody who is Canada famous. Yeah, it is the second time in my life that I've waited on a famous person. The first time was Colin Croft. If you are a follower of cricket. Colin Croft is one of the great West Indian fast bowlers. And he walked into my restaurant at like 3 p.m. in the middle of the week one day. And for whatever reason, there was no host. So I see this man walking toward the main dining room. And I immediately recognize him. And I say, hello, Mr. Croft. <laughs> and he, he pointed at me and he said, you come, come here. I'm like, oh, shit, what did I do? And then so I go to the front and his, his daughter is there. And he says to her, see, I told you, everywhere I go, somebody recognizes me. <laughs> so there are definitely two or three people listening who are very excited about that. Right. And so we had a great, great time chit-chatting. Uh, it felt very natural, whatever. This time, I'm not going to say who it was. I think what? that's fair, right? Oh, okay, fine. But people can guess. If they want to reach out and ask if they're correct, they can do that. I would say this person was on the second most famous Canadian sitcom of the last five years. <laughs> sure. So yeah. not that one, but that one. Mm-hmm. And, and remember, Canadian famous, not Marvel famous. Exactly. Well, no, I'm getting to the next clue. I'm saying, and if you get that show right, not that one, but that one. <laughs> <laughs> and he was there with his wife and two kids. That's another clue. And they were just lovely. The whole, all of them, they were just so great. There was another famous person you did not serve them, but perhaps the most famous of all. Queen of the dance hall. Yes, Spice. She's strong. She's healthy. She looked good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she was there with a bunch of her friends. I didn't wait on her that day. Um, She was wearing her signature blue hair. Mm -hmm. And all three of these people, I can say, were all good tippers. Which is very important. Nice. It is important. Lastly, this is the final call, wouldn't you say? Yeah, the final call for addresses. We we sent out our first batch recently. It's in the post right now. We honestly, like, we have been delayed because uh, our dog died. (laughs) Um, I I don't know how else to say it. I, I mean, it really has been... A fucking mess over here. Yeah. It, as you can imagine, the weeks leading up were exceedingly difficult. And we're just kind of putting things back together now. So we, we're we continuing to do postcards. We just would have preferred to, to have them done before. Mm-hmm. 
So mid-March is now our final, yes, final, final Almost. deadline for <laughs> yes. us. Yeah. Song dedication for this episode, and I'm, I'm going to make an executive decision and make it the title of the episode. Okay, okay. Fly Like a Bird by Miss Mariah Carey. One of my all-time faves. So I think it's, as you know, it's one of my top four. Mm. And I'd like to commemorate the moment with something special. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. You can find everything BodyServe related at linktree.com slash thebodyserve. Your favorite tournament of the year is upon us. <laughs> yes, somebody uh, will will be doing questions soon over the next few episodes. And somebody said, uh, we know the tournaments you don't like. How about listing the tournaments you do like? So I'm going to back off on the the negativity mm-hmm. there. Uh, there are lots of tournaments I do like, which I will list there when are? the question there comes are? up. Yes. Okay. Uh, so I'm not going to dwell on the dislike. Okay. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.